Um, so I think there's still a few people coming in, but we will go ahead and get started since it's 12 o'clock. Um, thanks to you all for being here today for our event on American energy security and the Iran crisis. Um, even though we've moved a little past the Iran crisis, I think it's still a very relevant, very important topic. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad people could be here today. Let me just start by introducing our panelists. Um, we'll just start over at this end. Um, so Josh Rovner is an associate professor at American University School of International Service, where he studies intelligence, strategy, and US foreign policy. Most recently, he was the co-editor of Chaos in the Liberal Order, the Trump Presidency and International Politics in the 21st Century. Um, he writes a monthly column for War on the Rocks and is the managing editor of H. Diplo's International Security Studies Forum. Then we've got Ellen Wald, just to my right here, who's a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center and the president of Transversal Consulting. She's the author of Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profits and Power, um, a book on the history and strategy of Aramco in Saudi Arabia. And she writes weekly columns on energy markets at investing.com and Forbes Online. She holds a PhD from Boston University and is currently an adjunct professor of Middle East history and policy at Jacksonville University. And then to my left here, Rosemary Kalanick is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Her research there focuses on international security, coercive diplomacy, energy politics, and US ground strategy. Um, her forthcoming book from Cornell University Press is Black Gold and Blackmail, Oil and Great Power Politics. She's also the editor of Crude Strategy, Rethinking the US Military Commitment to Defend Persian Gulf Oil um, from Georgetown University Press. Um, she holds a PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. Um, so I'm very pleased that you could all be here today. Um, we are going to be talking about a couple of things that have come up in the news in the last few months. Um, so on January 8th, um, Donald Trump addressed the nation um, following um, an Iranian missile attack on US positions in Iraq. Um, and he gave a speech that was predominantly about the attack and why the US wouldn't be responding. But buried in that speech was a really kind of fascinating aside. Um, as the president so often does, he just threw in this little comment where he said, America has achieved energy independence. These historic accomplishments have changed our strategic priorities. We're now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. We're independent and we do not need Middle East oil. Um, quite a stunning statement from the President of the United States. Um, and he's right. Um, America is now the world's largest producer of hydrocarbons. Um, this makes us to some extent more energy secure than in prior decades. Um, most Middle Eastern oil now goes east to China, India, and other Asian states rather than west to Europe or America. But it seems like our foreign policy priorities really haven't caught up to this new reality. Um, since 2016, the Trump administration's own policies have really doubled down on a heavy military presence in the Middle East. Um, we've added a bunch more troops. We've dialed up tensions with Iran. Um, and we've even engaged in a maximum pressure campaign against Iran that uses oil-focused sanctions in an attempt to weaken Iran's regional influence. So the Iran crisis really highlights, at least for me, this changing relationship between US foreign policy and global oil markets. If the president is suggesting that America really is energy independent, why have our strategic priorities not changed? Why do we remain so overcommitted to the Middle East. Um, and so this is the topic that I'm hoping we can dig into today in our panel with a discussion, a very broad discussion of these issues. 
Um, so I thought I would start by asking our guests just to give us a, a few of their thoughts, just five, six, seven minutes, um, on how they view the relationship between energy and American national security today. Um, and I've told them that they should feel free to interpret that question how they like, because I think there's a lot of good answers to this, a lot of different ways that you could conceptualize this relationship. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the different answers they give um, and how we can move forward and sparks further discussion here. Um, so we'll start over here. Let's start with you, Rose. Okay, great. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming today. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. And thanks, Emma, for inviting us all here. Um, what does energy security mean today? Uh, and how does it relate to American national security? Um, I think that our concept of energy security is fundamentally flawed. Um, in general, most people, when they think about energy security, they define energy security, they say it is um, <coughs> making sure that the United States and maybe its allies uh, have uninterrupted access to oil at a reasonable price. OK, that sounds like a reasonable definition of energy security. Um, but that definition, I would argue, is based on several faulty assumptions that today are at best outmoded and really, it's unclear how much they ever were true. Um, but I think that they're not true today. Um, the first one, which I'll just touch on, because I think it'll be a big part of our conversation, um, is that the assumption that it matters how much oil the United States gets from the Middle East, that our interests in the Middle East should be uh, congruent with or should vary in tandem with the amount of oil uh, the US imports from the Middle East. Um, this is a very common assumption that many people make that I think is totally wrong, um, because we know that the global oil market is, in fact, a global market. There's one market price for oil. Um, oil is a fungible commodity. Uh, it does not matter you know, whether the United States gets oil from the Middle East or gets oil from anywhere else, as long as we're part of the global oil, what we sometimes call bathtub, right, with one market price. What happens in other places of the world that might change energy prices is going to change our energy prices. Okay? And I'm talking specifically about oil, not about coal or other sorts of energy, because that's really the, the energy that's relevant to us and that's traded in large amounts. OK, that's point one. Point two, there's an assumption that the American military commitment to the Gulf has a positive effect on markets and has a positive effect on market stability, and in fact might be necessary in order to keep uh, stability in the Middle East going and stability in oil prices going. Um, I'm not sure that if we have an effect, it is net positive all the time. Um, but I also tend to believe in markets, right? We know markets work really well. And if the United States has a commit commitment to the Gulf or not, um, markets have a way of adapting really well, far better than any individual person could generally foresee or predict or plan for. Um, so if there is some kind of upheaval in the Middle East, uh, markets have a way of adapting very quickly to that. Okay, um, you know, we trust markets for everything else, for the most part, why shouldn't we trust them for this? Uh, my next point, the idea that political instability in the Middle East is a cause of high prices or oil price spikes. That's a, also a very common assumption, not clear to me that it's true. Um, it's intuitive. Right? And if something bad happens in the Middle East, say Iran attacks a Saudi oil facility, you might in the short term see a bump in oil prices. But very quickly, that peters out because markets adjust. Um, so the idea that if the US is not in the Middle East, 
the Middle East will go haywire, wrong. If the Middle East goes haywire, prices will go haywire in a lasting way, also maybe wrong. Um, and then finally, the idea that high oil prices are bad is one that I think we really need to revisit as a society, right? Um, knowing everything that we know about climate change, we should not, I think, be encouraging um, extremely low oil prices that allow us to continue consuming huge amounts of fossil fuels uh, in perpetuity, right, until we cook the planet and, and destroy it all, right? Um, this, you know, this concept of energy security that we've been working with for a long time dates way back. It dates back to the Cold War when some of these assumptions were more true and certainly when um, we did not have an understanding of how much we were damaging the planet, right? So in some ways, if you think that the U.S. presence in the Gulf helps keep prices low, helps our economy, ultimately we're enabling a destructive kind of consumption that we have to find a way to wean ourselves off of, right? Ideally, you want to do that gradually, um, but as long as oil prices are low, it's going to be really hard to get people to change their behavior and consume less of it. Um, so hopefully that's been provocative enough. Uh, Great. Thank Thanks. You. Yeah, so um, that's, that's really great. Let's move on to Ellen. Uh, sure, thank you. And thank you so much for, uh, for hosting this panel and, uh, and bringing me here. So I um, kind of look at the, the question of the relationship between uh, energy and national security. I see that there, there are really two, I think, main principles that best serve, um, best serve American energy security, and those are diversification and integration. Um, when I talk about diversification, I mean a diverse, uh, a diversity of energy types and also energy sources. And if you look at um, the mix of the different types of energy that America consumes, we're actually doing a fairly good job in terms of different uh, types of energy. We have, you know, a lot of petroleum, but also uh, natural gas coal, renewables, uh, nuclear. Um, so we have a pretty good mix. Um, we could definitely do better. But when you compare, say, our mix to some other countries, like if you look at the mix of energy that Saudi Arabia consumes, they're much less diversified than the United States is. So it's important, I guess, not to put all of our eggs in one basket and uh, to make sure that we have a diversity of sources of energy. But when I say diversity of sources, I also uh, diversity also applies to uh, areas and locations. So um, we also need to ensure that we have a diversity of areas where we're producing and harnessing that energy. Right now, a lot of our energy industry is very heavily focused in the Gulf Coast region, and that carries with it risks to our national security that are not necessarily risks from, say, foreign powers, but risks from, say, a hurricane. Uh, if a hurricane comes and takes out um, you know, the uh, infrastructure in the Gulf Coast, that can, severely, uh, that can have severe impacts on our ability to uh, both produce energy, but also to transport it to various places in the United States, uh, and that those effects can be very harmful for the U.S. economy. So uh, diversification of, of sources. And then also, I think the second important principle is integration. And when I uh, talk about integration, I think that it's really a mistake to look at energy security from just the perspective of the United States. What we really need to be doing is looking at it from the perspective of North America, from almost a hemispheric um, perspective that our energy systems are 
very much intertwined right now with uh, Canada and Mexico, not just because of NAFTA, but also, uh, for example, our biggest source of imported oil right now is Canada. And so it would serve our energy security to improve that integration because alone we face um, a lot of, of potential security issues. But better integrated with our neighbors, we can um, have the ability for our kind of market and, and our issues to react better uh, if there is some kind of energy issue. So I think stronger ties between the three countries will serve to better uh, strengthen our energy security. Uh, it's also a, one other kind of important thing to realize, and, and Rosemary kind of touched on this a bit, is that um, the energy situation that we're in now is not going to last forever. And part of the issue with the way that we conceive of our energy security and national security today is, um, I think, in many respects, we're in kind of a holdover from this uh, shock that we experienced in the early 1970s when our sources of foreign oil were cut off and we were at a point in um, where we could no longer um, account for rising demand with our own production. And we're no longer in that situation today. Um, but I think uh, policy tends to kind of have this lag time where uh, we create policy based on uh, we believe that whatever trend is happening now is going to continue in, uh, not if, if for perpetuity, but if for at least the next 20 to 30 years. And we tend to make policy that assumes that this trend will continue. Uh, we saw that with um, the creation of the renewable fuel standard in, uh, in 2005. And, um, we're not in the same situation as we were back then, and this is causing uh, some issues. And so when we look at our energy situation today and also our national security situation uh, as it relates to that, we need to remember that whatever we're experiencing today is going to change. It's not going to be the same way it is now as it is in 20 or 30 years. And, um, but when we're crafting policy that's going to have an effect for 20 to 30 years, we need to take that into consideration, I think, in a more effective way. Thanks, Josh. We'll come to you last but not least. Uh, great. Well, thank you very much for, for the invitation. And thanks uh, to, mm -hmm. to you all for coming today. Um, uh, I have a bad news, good news, bad news uh, story to, to share. Uh, start with bad news part one. If you believe that the free flow of oil through the Gulf to market is a good thing, or you don't want to run the experiment again about what a, a, a significant stoppage would look like, um, uh, then you have to look at Gulf politics. And the bad news is that Gulf politics are contentious, complex, dangerous, violent, and by and large out of the control of the United States. What's going on on the ground among the Gulf states it's outside of our control, as, as we've learned over the last 20 years. Right? The good news is to ensure the free flow of oil from the Gulf to market, we don't need to control events on the ground. Right? The, the United States is, is well positioned to take advantage of its um, intelligence capabilities and its naval capabilities in order to make sure that oil continues to flow with a very modest, scaled-down footprint. Right? The United States doesn't need to have a large force in the Persian Gulf region if the goal is simply to make sure that oil flows to market. A, a few years ago, a, a colleague 
Caitlin Talmadge and I wrote a piece on, on what a force would look like in the Gulf region that could make sure that oil continues to, to flow. And it's, again, it's, it's a skeletal presence. It's enough um, uh, basing where you have the ability to surge in forces if needed, and you have enough basing to enable intelligence cap capabilities in, in the region. This is not that many people. Right? This is probably low tens of thousands at most. Right? And, and it takes advantage of the fact that the United States has really good ability to monitor events against countries who might seek to disrupt the flow of, of oil. Right? This, is, this is the US comparative advantage. It relies heavily on intelligence forward as a replacement for force forward. It relies on the fact that we can trade knowledge for power in this region, that we don't have to have a huge military footprint in order to secure this modest goal. And if, it, and if we want later on, we can go through some of the details of, of what the force would look, look like. But suffice it to say now, it, it's not a lot. Right? It's, 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 uh, existing base facilities on Bahrain, a couple of air bases, and a strong offshore presence. Right? Doesn't require a lot of ground troops, and it, it, it certainly doesn't require some of the things that we've heard a lot about. Right? Ground forces in places where they're conspicuous and controversial. It doesn't require a lot of forces in Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Syria. It doesn't require carriers flowing through the Gulf. In fact, carrier deployments into the Persian Gulf it's a profoundly bad idea and not helpful for securing the flow of oil, right? So the good news is we can do this. We can sustain this kind of modest forward presence, which is reliant on intelligence. We can do this for the indefinite future, right? Bad news, good news. The bad news is we're going in the other direction. The bad news is that the U.S. is actually increasing its ground-based footprint in the Gulf. Currently, the number is somewhere in the range of 60,000 forces in the region, and that number has gone up a lot lately. Depending on who's counting, you probably have 18,000-plus personnel who've been deployed to the Persian Gulf just over the last 10 months, 18,000 additional personnel. And they've been deployed to places where they're conspicuous and controversial, Iraq, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. In addition, the Trump administration has brought back carrier deployments into the Persian Gulf. The Abraham Lincoln sailed twice last year. This is unnecessary. A carrier does not sail by itself. It can't really defend itself without a large fleet of supporting ships. It's not well-suited for close-in places like the Persian Gulf. Meanwhile, carriers have a lot of striking power, and if you want to use them, you can use them from the Indian Ocean. So take them out of the place they're vulnerable, where they're still quite effective. Right? But that's not the direction we're going. We're going for more ground forces in places where they're likely to be controversial, and more carrier deployments. That's bad news, and, and, and it gets worse, because um, it's not just a Trump administration trend. There is this bipartisan agreement, and frankly public agreement, that the Middle East and the Persian Gulf region is central to US national security interests. This is an idea that we've found it very hard to break from. And as long as that idea continues to be deeply embedded in policy circles and in the public at large, 
then it's going to be a, a hard habit to break. We will continue to, to, to deploy the kind of forces which are frankly unnecessary uh, and, and I don't think helpful if the goal is uh, energy security in any form. With that, I'll stop and hopefully we'll have a good discussion. Great. Well, well thanks to you all for some, some really interesting thoughts. Um, I mean, I, I'm just going to pull out a few themes here and then hopefully we can talk through these as we continue our discussion. So, I mean, the question of whether the U.S. military uh, presence in the Middle East is stabilizing or destabilizing, I think, came up a couple of times. Um, the question of whether uh, how important the Middle East is in an increasingly globalized energy market, um, how difficult it can be to know the future when it comes to things like energy security. I'm not sure we're going to resolve that one today, but maybe we can come back to it. Um, and then the question of why the disconnect between how we view the Middle East, how we're acting there today, um, and the actual reality of things. So um, I'd like to try and hit these all. Um, but let's start with that, that initial question that, you know, Rose, you, you brought it up first, that the question of whether the US military presence in the Middle East is stabilizing. We've always assumed that one of the big reasons that the US is in the Middle East is because we're helping to ensure that the world oil market is stable by doing so. Could you talk a little more about that? Uh, sure, about sort of the underpinning assumptions of yeah, it? Or, sure. Yeah, yeah, so it's an assumption that goes way, way, way back um, to the Cold War, right? And, and I think that this speaks somewhat to the question about the disconnect in policy. I think a lot of it is because we have these legacy policies that have sort of been going on um, for many decades that are frankly relatively cheap for us to do, um, and so we have not had a huge incentive to change them. Um, during the Cold War, we worried, the US worried, uh, that if Persian Gulf oil exporters got too friendly with the Soviet Union, or if the Soviet Union um, invaded or an otherwise uh, you know, toppled friendly governments or got involved in the Middle East, that they would be able to uh, choke off oil to the United States in some kind of crisis and use that as a means of coercion, okay? Not just to the United States, but also to its allies in Europe and Japan, okay? This is something that um, policymakers worried about a lot. Um, it underlay our decision in the 1970s to start paying closer attention to the Gulf to start arming, uh, you know, arming uh, the Shah of Iran up to the gills, right? Um, and uh, after the Cold War ended, there really was not a similar threat to the Soviet Union. Yes, Saddam took over Kuwait. We worried that Saddam might go for Saudi Arabia next. Uh, was it a good idea to stop him? Probably. Right? We don't want one country to control all of their resources. But if that country is, a, is an oil-producing country, that's less scary than if it's the Soviet Union. Right? The whole ideology of the Soviet Union is not, let's make a lot of money. Right? Uh, the ideology and the concerns of the Soviet Union was to hurt us. Right? Um, if a nasty government came into, into control in Saudi Arabia tomorrow uh, that didn't like the United States, they're still going to sell oil to everybody in the world because they need to make money, okay? Um, and so now that we don't have this looming threat in the Middle East anymore of a country that actually could potentially take oil off the market, right? This isn't something that the United States has to worry about in the same way that it used to. Anybody else? I'll, I'll, so I think one of the important things that we need to, to kind of go, go off of what you said is let's think about why Saudi Arabia 
is welcoming, at least right now, US troops to Saudi Arabia. Because I think that if we kind of unpack some of the reasons there, we'll realize that it probably doesn't have nearly as much to do with oil as maybe we thought it did, or as we assume it does. Oil's a very convenient thing for kind of a politician to stand up and say, we, we need to make sure we have oil, so we're going to send troops, when in fact, that's actually not the reason at all. But it sounds good. It's just like the phrase, energy independence, sounds great. Um, it's actually not true, can never be true, and wouldn't even be a good thing if it could be true because it would mean that we were, we're isolating ourselves. But it sounds, it sounds good when you use it in a stump speech. So I think we can kind of set that aside. Um, but let's, let's kind of address, I've kind of got four reasons. Why would Saudi Arabia want the US to, be, uh, to have a military presence in Saudi Arabia in the first place? There are four reasons I can think of. Uh, because we have to remember, we've actually been selling them a lot of military equipment. I mean, they've got Patriot missiles. They've got our fighters. We're trading their, their fighter pilots. Like, they've, they've, they're buying our military equipment to begin with. So why, why do we need to be there if we've already sold them all the stuff that they potentially need to, um, you know, to help themselves or to, to defend themselves? So one is maybe the Saudis feel like they aren't competent, despite the training. Despite, they feel they aren't competent um, to to deploy these things and to defend their assets on their own. Uh, maybe they're scared, OK? Um, they recently, they're, they're battle-tested fighting rebels in Yemen, and that didn't go so well for them. So they might be scared that they're not competent, and they're not confident in their ability to confront Iran's capabilities. Um, a third reason could be is, and I think this is a very, very important one, is that an American military presence in Saudi Arabia looks good for the Saudi monarchy. And uh, it really looks good for the, the king and his son to be able to say that the president of the United States cares enough about Saudi Arabia to send soldiers and airmen over to help defend them. That makes them look good. It shores up this legitimacy that they need, that also needs, because it wants to tout this special relationship that it has with the United States, uh, and this so-called special relationship, which I don't think is actually all that special from the US perspective, but we can get into that later if you want. Um, that's part of the monarchy's legitimacy and, and founding legitimacy. So those are, those are three reasons. And the fourth is, um, it, this enables them to play the blame game. If something goes wrong, they can blame the US. It's like kind of why people hire management consultants in order to decide who to fire at their company, because they don't want to take the blame for it. They can say, well, you know, the management consultant said this would, this would be good. And if it turns out to not be good, they can blame the consultant. So you know, if there's a missile that's fired or something bad happens, the Saudis can kind of, the, the king and, and the royal family can step back and say, oh, well, you know, we're blaming the United States. So I think if we, we look at that, none of that actually really has much to do with oil at all anyway. Very, very quickly, and just, just following on, on those comments, um, from the Saudi perspective, or from, from any of the Gulf, state, Gulf states' per perspective, it's good to have the United States around. Right? The United States has this enormously powerful military. It has this remarkable intelligence capability where it can keep track of Iran and, and others that they're concerned about. I mean, it's, it, it must be nice to have Washington on your side. Washington can provide the kind of maritime stability that does matter, again, for the modest purpose of ensuring the flow of oil. If you think about that problem in, in terms of a maritime collective action dilemma, I, I think it becomes clear why. You have a, a bunch of states in the Gulf, including the Saudis, who don't get along very well, right? 
and who would need to cooperate on this joint project to keep tankers going in and out uh, uninhibited. Right? Um, doing that would be very complex and contentious. The United States can roll in right, and basically say, we'll do it for you. We will solve your collective action problem. We will provide that. You can do whatever you do. Um, but we will take care of this thing that we're very good at, right, at, at, at coordinating the movement of ships through the Gulf, providing a, a, a modicum of, of security. So this is the kind of stabilizing influence that is actually quite useful for a maritime power like the United States. It doesn't require a lot of people to do it. It requires uh, 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 thoughtfulness, technology, good intelligence. It's the kind of thing that the United Kingdom did for many, many years in the Gulf before it left in 1971, with, again, a very small, modest presence. Right? So as long as, as, as US policymakers aren't thinking that stability requires on-the-ground politicking, an effort to resolve these deep and abiding issues between the Gulf states, uh, then we're okay. It's, it's when we get, go that next step and, and believe that we have to control events on the ground that we, we get into trouble. Can, can I respond yeah, to that? Please. Um, so just to you know, disagree with all respect, um, the maritime function of the United States really is not necessary, right? So um, the nightmare scenario that people worry about is what if something happens in the Strait of Hormuz, right? Huge amounts of uh, the global oil supply go through the Strait of Hormuz every day. Iran happens to sit right next to it. Um, Iran might try to do something to interfere with the flow of traffic. That would be bad. The fact that we rely so much on the Strait of Hormuz is because, at least in part, um, our allies know that we are there to protect them, right? Um, there's no reason why oil has to go through the Strait of Hormuz. We could build pipelines, right? In fact, Saudi Arabia has started doing this, building pipelines to the Red Sea to avoid the Strait, right? The fact that we have this choke point is because they have no incentive to try to find alternate routes as long as we're there to protect them. So yes, in the current situation where, the Gulf, where Hormuz matters so much, okay, maybe having an American maritime presence is helpful, but it's not clear to me that we must have that situation. Yeah, I, I, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I, I mean, it's a good, you raise a good point about the fact that that's not the only way out of mm -hmm. the Persian Gulf, and there are pipelines that go across Saudi Arabia to the Red Sea, but you also have to remember the Red Sea is not an entirely secure area anyway. You've either got to go um, you know, out or you've got to go through the Suez Canal, and there are a lot of issues getting around that that tip where Yemen is, particularly in terms of, of pirating. There's also an issue is that the pipeline, so the, the current pipeline that's going across Saudi Arabia is, um, you know, is not used for crude oil right now. It's used for other things. You can, you can change that over, and they're building another one, but that's still not enough mm -hmm. capacity. The UAE does have, can get around that through some of, some of their exports, but you're really looking at Iraq and Iran and Kuwait, who are stuck essentially, and uh, particularly Iraq. One of the, I think, the important things to, to remember this is that Iran is not motivated to necessarily block the Strait of Hormuz in a way that is catastrophically blocks it, say, like sinking a ship uh, in it. So at one point, Nasser blocked the uh, Suez Canal by sinking ships throughout the canal, and that blocked it to everyone's use. Mm -hmm. But Iran is still exporting 
a small amount of oil, and, and, but not an insignificant amount, at least a million barrels a day, is, is coming out of Iran. And they're also using the Strait of Hormuz to get that oil out. So if they're going to block it to Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, they're also blocking it for themselves. And so that's, I think, an important component to realize when you're looking at, is this really a likely scenario? And, and I think that markets tend to think that things are, sometimes markets tend to react to thinking that that situation is more likely. I would argue that it's actually a lot less likely than people think it is. And, uh, and, and markets have shown that, yes, they price it in, but it's an extremely rare, it's, it's, they're pricing it as something that's very, very rare. So I think it's much less likely to happen than perhaps we've been led to believe it is. You want to respond to that? I do. Um, <laughs> Anybody who disagrees with you in all respects, but with respect, is, is, it's worth, <laughs> worth, worth, worth a response. Now, I, 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 I take the, the underlying point is there, there's a fundamental policy question about whether you not need any U.S. presence, right? And whether you believe that uh, uh, the market is self-correcting and resilient. I'm not an oil economist. I don't even play one on TV. I, I don't know nearly as much about uh, the industry and the nature of the market as, as my colleagues. I, I'm making a, a, a more narrow argument that in the present, if you believe that this is important, you can do it at, at a low cost. Mm -hmm. right? The question that, that, um, that Rose gets at is important, though. It, it's that uh, if we have any presence in the Gulf, we are creating moral hazard. Right? We are. are stopping uh, the Gulf countries from making hard choices about resolving their own problems by offloading it on, onto us. Um, I, I would say that, that a little moral hazard is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. I'm not exactly sure what a maritime competition among the Gulf states would look like, where there's deep and abiding hostilities. I'm not sure I want to run that experiment, especially when there's a pretty inexpensive alternative. Now, the, the trick is keeping U.S. Um, presence reasonably low and modest, right? uh, that you don't contribute to too much moral hazard, that you don't make it uh, uh, impossible. I actually think the Obama administration was close to getting it right, right? close to getting it right in as, in as much as it was providing maritime stability in the Gulf but doing just enough to make Gulf states worried that they would be abandoned, right? They were not happy with Obama in his last few years, and I think that was a good thing. So it was uh, keeping this, this, this balance between enough force to resolve the collective action problem, right, at low cost and let the oil go through, but not putting so much force on the ground and not uh, being effusive publicly about our, our friends and partners in the Gulf region to create a situation where they can truly offload all responsibility onto us. Yeah, well, so um, let, let's bracket, perhaps, for now, this, this question of sort of uh, a little force, little maritime force, um, or no force at all. Because I, I think, um, you know, Josh is right. We, we may be quite a long way from even that discussion. But I kind of want to throw another hand grenade into the, the discussion here, which is, um, you mentioned, you know, that we, that, that it's, um, you know, the British took responsibility for this um, in the past, that the U.S. takes responsibility for resolving this collective action problem today. Um, what about China? So, um, not, not to say that Donald Trump was right again about something, but actually he says, um, you know, a while back he said uh, that China 
is the biggest importer of Gulf oil and that the US is basically paying to protect China's oil supplies in the Gulf. Any thoughts? Uh, if I may. Um, so he's right, except it's not just China, right? So we're, we are paying, to the extent that our presence underwrites low oil prices in the Middle East, which is debatable, um, we are helping everybody uh, get secure access to the global oil market and keeping prices stable, right? Not just China. And um, you know, China is a huge oil consumer. Uh, they're going to consume more oil than we do, eventually. Um, so they are, anything that stabilizes the market, they're going to benefit from. But it's not as though the fact that they get so much oil from the Gulf means that they disproportionately benefit from the American presence there. Again, assuming that the presence is beneficial. That's a big uh, issue to consider. And, and yes, we're not just protecting China's oil. We're also protecting South Korea's oil and Japan's oil and India's oil. And those are all, um, particularly China and India, are all growing consumers of oil. I think China consumes about 14 million barrels a day right now. They import between 10 and 11 million barrels of oil. For comparison, the US consumes about 20 million mm -hmm. barrels uh, per day of oil. And we produce about 12 right now. Uh, 12 million barrels uh, per day. So I think that, that the China question has to be examined and interrogated because um, one of the arguments I've heard is, well, if the US gives up this position, well, isn't that creating an opening for China to come in and kind of take over? And, and to me, that uh, strikes me as a very um, kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, great game view of politics in which, um, you know, a loss for you in some area of the world or, or a gain for someone else in some area of the world is automatically a loss for you. That's kind of what led to um, uh, Africa being divided up. And, and I used to teach this and when I taught international relations and we used to get into this kind of great game stuff it, where, where one, you know, if, if France got this colony in Africa, that was a, a um, that meant a loss for Britain or Germany, for example. And I think that that is a very antiquated or early, you know, late 19th century way of viewing things. Um, other countries potentially helping to protect their oil, is, we, we need to interrogate whether that's actually a loss for the United States. And I think we might find that it's not necessarily a loss. One of the other issues that people bring up is, well, do we really want Saudi Arabia to grow closer to China? And the fact is that Saudi Arabia is growing closer to China, has been growing closer to China for a lot longer than we think it has. Um, there are incredible links between Aramco, the national oil company of Saudi Arabia, and China. They have a lot of joint ventures there. They've got long-term contracts for oil that they send there. They've, you know, Aramco sends students to Chinese universities to learn Chinese so that they can uh, you know, be assets in that country and further the relationship between Aramco and China, and and that's that's happening. That's been in play. You know that that strategy has been going on for many years. It's basically been there. They've had this strategy since the 1990s, and and that's a fact. Now, some people think, oh, well, that could mean that you know Saudi Arabia might start selling oil in Chinese currency, and that could really damage the stability of the oil market. And I would say that that's really that that's not an option, particularly at this point. The Saudi real is pegged to the dollar, and um, in part because of the oil trade. And I think that, it, that Aramco does all its business in dollars. It would be a very, very difficult pro prospect for 
Aramco to stop selling its oil in dollars to China, um, that there, there's no way they're going to suddenly unpeg the Saudi currency uh, to the dollar. That would cause incredible inflation in, in Saudi Arabia. So I think that, that this idea that stepping back would kind of create this opening for China is perhaps not as uh, real a prospect as we think it is, or we might think it is. Josh, yes, do you want to weigh in on this? Briefly, um, President Trump's argument that we are subsidizing low oil prices for China is really problematic. Because if you string out that logic to its end point, that means that China should be doing it itself. I'm not crazy about any proposal for encouraging China to build its power projection capabilities. I, I don't think anybody should be encouraging that kind of behavior. Right now, China is, is an ambitious, uh, a, a growing great power, but it has a lot of internal problems. Right? And the thing that, in my mind, has kept everything uh, basically in check in, in East Asia is that China's military power attenuates really quickly once you get past the Chinese coastline. That's a good thing. I, 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 again, I don't want to run the experiment when, when, we, when we give China reasons to try to, 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 to develop the kind of capabilities that it can use to project power in Asia and beyond. Right? So this, this kind of 19th century mercantilist view um, could lead to a modern kind of competition for empire, and I don't think that will work out well for anyone. Okay, well, let's, let's pull this back a little from, from China, because we, we sort of glossed over the question of why our sort of military and political approach to the Middle East um, remains so unchanged. Um, given uh, you know changes in the global oil market, so um, you know we we alluded to the fact uh, you, you talked a little about all the reasons why our presence in the Gulf is good for Saudi Arabia, but we didn't really actually talk about it from the U.S. point of view. So maybe it's more of a meta question: Why, why hasn't our policy changed? Why do we still have so many troops in the region? Maybe we'll, why don't we start over here for a change? Sure, um, it, it, it's it's not just oil. I think it's it's other things which are actually more important to, to the story. Um, the the U.S. presence in 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 the Persian Gulf sort of steadily ticked up from the '70s and the '80s and all the way into to, to the '90s. Uh, between 2009 and 2014, it came down a lot. It went from about 230,000 to about 50,000 in five years. That was mostly the product of Obama's decision to get out of, of Iraq, but I, I think it also reflected a, a, a deep desire that, that Obama had to reduce our presence and to focus on other issues like China and, 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 and uh, great power politics. Right? The, the problem was that we, we got pulled back by ISIS. Right? And the, the summer of 2014 was a really bad summer. Right? And, and the, the sort of grisly videos that ISIS was putting up on the internet and, and the, the chaos in, in Syria and Iraq as a result of the ISIS offensive led the administration to get back into uh, Iraq and then Syria. Right? So uh, since that time, Obama reversed the exit, renewed attention to it. And with Trump, it's, it's increased even further because Trump is very hostile to Iran. So there's both the, the continuing counterterrorism mission, which is occupying a lot of attention, but there's also uh, uh, Iran. Iran checks off a lot of boxes for this administration. Right? Um, opposing Iran uh, is a way of distinguishing Trump from Obama. 
opposing the nuclear deal as a way of distinguishing Trump from Obama, opposing Iran and putting pressure on Iran is a way of aligning US policies with Israel and Saudi Arabia, whom Trump is very close with. So for all of these reasons, there's this inclination to step up our military activity against Iran, leading to what we now have as maximum pressure. Maximum pressure, this ongoing campaign to sanction Iran's economy, confront it militarily, and isolate it diplomatically in order to coerce it to change behavior. Uh, this is the, these two things, terrorism and Iran, are driving a lot of the, 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 the additional forces which have been sent to the region over the last 10 months. There's an irony here, though. The great irony is that if you're really interested in maximum pressure against Iran, it's probably better to have fewer boots on the ground. Because those land-based forces, especially in Iran and Syria, are sitting ducks. Right? They're targets. They're targets for Iran. They are targets for groups that Iran supports. Right? They're inherently vulnerable to, 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 to violence. Whereas they'd be much more safer if, if we had a, 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 a smaller ground footprint. That would be a position in which you could really apply pressure while reducing the risk. Yeah, there's perhaps another tension that, that I'd, I'd sort of like to throw into the mix here, which is, um, you know, if we're going to talk about our energy interests versus the Trump administration's sort of maximum pressure campaign on Iran, that campaign has taken one to two million barrels of oil off the market. Um, and so, again, doesn't necessarily seem like those goals are, are actually moving in the same direction. Other thoughts on this? Well, I'll, I'll say that I think, I mean, this... It's almost been, it's been incredible to watch this policy unfold because every time the Trump administration makes a move that you think is going to, that, that takes more barrels of oil off the market, they also do something that kind of kills demand in some respects. So it's, it's uh, they've gotten incredibly lucky in some respects. So, you know, we've got sanctions on Iranian oil. We've got sanctions on Venezuelan oil. On top of that, you've got a situation in Libya that's also taken a million barrels of oil off the market. So we're talking now like two million barrels are off the market from Venezuela between the sanctions and the degrading economic conditions. You've got a million off the market from Libya. You've got over two million barrels per day off the market from Iran, probably more. Um, and yet we have oil prices that can barely, you know, WTI, the American benchmark, can barely keep above $50. $50. And, and part of that has to do, part of that right now is because of coronavirus, which was not something that the Trump administration had any hand in. But part of the reason that, that they've been able to kind of do all of these policies at the same time was that the, the trade war with China had everyone so on edge about demand and that oil demand was going to go down and that that oil demand was, was dropping, they essentially kind of killed, killed demand at the same time. Plus, you've got the exploding American energy industry. So it's, it's really been this confluence that I don't think that, that anyone could really have planned for. And yet, somehow, it's all combined to keep oil prices low, which I think gives US foreign policy a lot more leverage in, in other respects when it comes to the Middle East to really begin to rethink some of the long the, the assumptions that we have held on to for so long. Uh, and and to, to kind of comment on some of what, what you said, that there are a lot of other reasons we're in the Middle East that don't have to do with oil, terrorism, and, and, other, and other issues. But we're often, I think we often find policymakers using the, 
the oil and the energy as, um, as kind of a cloak for this. And it might be more effective to kind of peel back that cloak and have a real discussion about how effective are these forces and what exactly are they doing and is it really in our best interest when we've kind of peeled back the, the energy cloak. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'd like to pick up on, on your point about um, the North American energy resurgence. And um, I, my priors in general tend to be that there's nothing new under the sun. So when people say, oh, this time is different and fracking, it's you know, revolutionizing everything, I tend to sort of think, is it? Yeah, is it really? Um, but the more I've looked into it, the more I actually find myself agreeing somewhat, right? So it's not that, oh, the US is producing so much oil now, that changes everything. But there's more, arguably, there's more excess capacity in the market if you live in a world where there's lots of fracking. Um, so one of the reasons why in the past prices have jumped up and down um, if something happens to contract the supply of oil is that oil is very, uh, the, the price of oil, uh, oil is very supply inelastic, right? So if the price of oil jumps up, traditionally with conventional oil, you can't immediately expand your production to then keep up with that, right? But with fracking, actually, you can be much more responsive, right? So if, uh, if prices go down, uh, a lot of frackers are still producing, but you could also shut in the well and come back to it later, and it doesn't damage the well the same way it would if it were a conventional well. Um, it's also the case that if, uh, you know, if uh, prices go way, way, way up, frackers can start many more wells, or they can have wells that they've left sort of half started and quickly ratchet them up. So there is more slack in the market, I think, um, now that we're in the era of fracking. Um, and so it's really more about the sort of the type of oil than the quantity of oil. But I think that has certainly combined to help um, make up for barrels of oil that are not on the market because of sanctions against Iran and Venezuela, et cetera. Yeah, so um, I do want to sort of get to questions here pretty soon. Um, but before we sort of wrap up our discussion, um, I just want to ask you guys to answer a very quick question. If you were given a clean slate um, and asked to design a force posture for maximizing US energy security today, and I, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the Middle East, um, what, what would it look like? And I think we're going to see some disagreement based on our previous conversation. Any takers? Sure. Well, it, it would be uh, uh, in, in, in broad brush strokes, a, a US force posture to maximize energy security would be inconspicuous, it would be naval, and it would based, be based on intelligence. Right? Uh, doing those things um, makes it easier to make sure that oil gets from one place to another uh, over the naval commons, which are, which are easier to protect than fixed land-based installations. So uh, go big on the Navy, uh, go, go big on intelligence, and, and reduce other forces. In terms of what, what that looks like in, in the Gulf region, um, essentially I would maintain uh, 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 the, the US Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, but at a smaller scale than it currently is, and with more boring kind of uh, unsexy warships like mine countermeasures. Right? They're old, but they're really practical. Right? Uh, I would maintain uh, a skeletal presence at two air bases, one in Qatar and one in the UAE, which provide logistics for intelligence and reconnaissance. Right? I would sharply scale down the US presence in Kuwait. Right? 
it, it, it's, it's useful as, as a logistics hub, but it doesn't need to be as big as it is right now, and it's, unfortunately, it's getting bigger. I think this is a problem. So in general, the, 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 the broad brush answer, again, is, is, is relying on your, your naval advantages and your intelligence advantages. And the narrow specific uh, uh, posture in the Persian Gulf is, is sort of as I've described it. I'm not a military expert, so I'm not going to get into specific military things of any form because it's really not my uh, expertise at all. But I would say that, that there are probably two good components. There's a foreign policy component, and then there's a domestic energy production component. And I think we just, that policymakers who are designing these this kind of force posture should keep in mind uh, a bunch of, of underlying important underlying principles one of those is is making sure that they understand the reasons why um, the Gulf countries who have invited us to be in their areas militarily the re that we understand why we're there and what our presence serves for them in areas other than oil so I went into that more with Saudi Arabia in terms of of why the Saudis might want us in Saudi Arabia militarily and that we should be aware of those reasons because that can have a big impact on how American forces conduct themselves, but also the decisions that are being made in terms of how to, to use force and whether we want to play along with, um, you know, with it and, and support those, uh, those assumptions. But um, I think in terms of foreign policy, you really can't build a foreign policy around oil uh, alone. That, that would be uh, neglecting a lot of other really important things. Um, but we have to also realize that from our perspective, domestically, we're not just a consumer anymore. We're also a producer. And so it's important to think about the economic component of you know, low oil prices for our, um, our producers and, be, and the economic growth and the economic benefits that we have enjoyed and continue to enjoy because of that. Um, we, I think, need to very much, rel we need to kind of focus on, on the markets and letting the markets work things out. Um, getting rid of the ban on oil exports was a huge part of that. It really has allowed American energy to join the global, uh, the global marketplace. And I think that we're going to see uh, a lot of, of interesting things that result from that, that, may, that in the way that kind of markets work out these issues that we hadn't previously uh, imagined. Oh, I get to be controversial now. I get to end with the, um, in my worldview, if we could just start totally from scratch, um, there wouldn't be a US military posture in the Middle East, right? Uh, particularly not in the Persian Gulf, um, because I don't think it's necessary. And we would take the money that we use to maintain that posture, and we would invest it in trying to rid ourselves of our dependence on oil, period, right? So as long as the United States economy depends on oil, whatever happens in other places of the world that affect the oil market are going to affect us, okay? Um, if we take the money that we spend, and there's lots of debate over how much money that is, how much of a difference it would make, if we invest it in better research into batteries, alternative fuels, things that help the United States reduce its demand for oil in general, right? Um, the U.S. would actually be much more secure, I think, um, and we would be, you know, we'd have this massive twofer of we're getting off of this dirty energy that hurts us from a climate change perspective. Okay, well, we're going out with a bang there. So let's open this up to some questions um, because you guys have been very patient and very uh, uh, nice and quiet as we've had this discussion. So um, if you have a question, please um, 
raise your hand. We have microphones here. Um, introduce yourself, give your affiliation, and we do apply the Jeopardy rule here at Cato, so please end your question with a question mark. Okay, there is a question right here, third, fourth, fourth row. Gentleman in the blue coat. Uh, thank you all so much. Uh, my name is Cameron Consarini. I'm the uh, policy director at the National Union for Democracy in Iran. And this was very interesting to hear all of your perspectives. M your comments naturally were predicated on the stability uh, and the you know, maintenance of the current regime in Iran. And I think given some of the things we've seen recently from mass protests against the regime in the country calling for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic from even signs of, of state failure with the handle of the handling, I should say, of coronavirus. I, I don't want to ask you to predict because I know that's not what analysts do, but as a matter perhaps of, of risk management, how might this conversation or these relationships change uh, if there were a different, uh, perhaps uh, democratic, Western allied uh, government in Iran? How might this all differ? Yeah, okay, so we have a very provocative question, um, and I'm also going to add to it, because I think something that we didn't talk about today, because we were very much focused on long-term strategic questions, is we haven't actually talked about the coronavirus question, the fact that oil markets are now expecting to see sort of a decline in demand over 2020, which is a big change, um, so perhaps we could talk about that a little as well. Any volunteers? I'll, I'll talk a little bit. So, um, from my perspective, um, I think if Iran democratizes or if the regime changes, um, particularly in a, in a direction that the United States sees as favorable to its interests, um, I think that would be great for Iran. Um, I think it would change the politics somewhat so that if you wanted to lessen the American presence in the Middle East, you would be able to do that. Um, to me, it doesn't really change the supply picture from uh, you know, an oil point of view. I suppose we would lift the sanctions and then there would be more Iranian oil on the market and maybe prices would go down even more. Um, but I don't tend to think that um, the Iranian regime's nature and structure really has much of an effect on the market. Um, I, I would like to jump in there because I think it's also, it's, when, you're, when you consider that, I want to consider it from the perspective of the dynamic of the Gulf. And a democratic Iran is Saudi Arabia's worst nightmare, without a doubt. Um, Saudi Arabia likes to talk about how uh, it wants to confront Iran, it wants to change Iran's behavior. That's talk. Saudi Arabia needs Iran, and they need uh, Iran as it is. Um, why? Iran is the perfect foil for the Saudi government right now. Um, they, if they're replaced with a more politically liberal uh, and secular government, let's not even go towards democracy, uh, even if they're replaced with something that, that's just more political, uh, politically liberal, that's a huge threat to the Saudi monarchy. Um, and coronavirus is, is, is one way where you can see this playing out. So coronavirus, it hits Iran, and immediately you see the Saudi government media pumping up all of these stories about how Iran isn't handling the coronavirus very well. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not dealing with it well. And then the next day, you get um, news that Saudi Arabia is basically closing its borders to most people and prohibiting all doctors from speaking to the media, um, which is basically the same thing that Iran did when they said nobody can talk to the media. So first they criticized Iran, and then they do the same thing. Um, so basically, Saudi Arabia really needs Iran to stay there um, in order to look like it's better than Iran. Um, if Iran does change, that will be a huge example to the Saudi people of what they could have, because um, you know Iran has a much more diverse economy, or certainly could have, if it was not 
in the regime that it is in. And um, that's what Saudi Arabia wants. And, and Saudi Arabia is trying to push itself up as the place to do business. Well, if Iran suddenly became politically liberal, that would be the place to do business in the Middle East. Um, you'd pick that over Saudi Arabia any day, I think, if you were a company and you were looking to, say, build a factory or, or anything like that. And so I think when you when you you look at it, the potential for a democratic Iran, you have to also consider how the dynamics of the Gulf might change very much. You could, I think, if there's anything that could topple the Saudi monarchy, it's a new regime in in Iran, and that would really change our military calculus uh, a great deal. So uh, I don't uh, know enough about coronavirus to say anything intelligent about it. Only I spent 90 minutes washing my hands before uh, this event. <laughs> I, I do know something about regime change, though, and, and uh, the premise of your question is, if there was a, a democratic, pro-American, stable regime in Iraq, what would happen? All I know is it takes a long time to get there, right? and the process of regime change is not nice. Regime change is a dangerous, bloody business, right? and regime change in, in a place like Iran where you have enormous political fractures, a, a, a history of support for non-state armed groups, right, and, and violence against people, suggests to me that if the regime collapsed in Iran, the United States would not uh, 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 celebrate. The United States would freak out. We would. We'd freak out. Regime change would suck in American forces in very large numbers for reasons that don't really have anything to do with oil. Right? So the, the military balance would change, right, much as regime change sucked in American forces in Iraq, uh, and the threat of regime change sucked in uh, U.S. forces elsewhere, but not in ways that would benefit the kind of idealized force posture you'd need for the energy, uh, the energy issue. Yeah, and uh, for those who are interested in the topic of regime change, actually, we had a policy forum a couple of weeks ago. We have a new report out from Cato Foreign Policy on that topic. I believe there's some copies in the lobby, or if not, you can find it on our website. So let's take some more questions. Let's, let's take a couple. So one up the back there, the gentleman in the pink shirt, and one in the front row right here, gentleman in the black sweater. Um, start here. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Philip Cornell at the Atlantic Council, um, a colleague of Ellen's, and very happy to uh, to be here and to hear this talk. Thanks very much. Um, I think uh, you know we were going in the right direction. I think when you were asking about the coronavirus and thinking about what's actually the effect of low oil price environment on the security situation in the region, because I mean there is a short-term demand issue. There's a medium-term, obviously, um, supply issue out of U.S. unconventional oil, and there's also a long-term demand issue in terms of what's going to happen to oil demand going out into the 2030s. And it seems to me with the low oil prices, um, you know, on one side, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia and our allies in the Gulf are finding it very, very difficult to cope, and it's encouraging a lot of transitions there that are making it quite shaky. At the same time, Russia is very much taking advantage. I mean, in Vienna today, uh, we see the Saudis very much uh, in the hands of the Russians. Uh, and at the same time, uh, China, you know, obviously having a big uh, interest in, in oil prices coming through. So my question would be, um, you know, in a very low, low oil price environment going over over the next decade, what does our security situation look like in the Gulf? And does an American military presence create a tripwire or, or any other kind of uh, influence at all? Thanks. Great. Thanks. Let's take one more question before we start. Uh, Ahmad Hoshimi uh, from uh, Gunas TV, South Azerbaijan TV located in uh, Chicago. So uh, uh, one of the main components or the main component of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, maximum pressure campaign is uh, reducing Iran's oil export to zero, and the uh, Pompeo and, and the Trump administration is working on that 
until it's uh, it, it, it's reached to zero. So, uh, and at the same time, Iran has uh, threatened that uh, if no oil can pass through the, uh, if no Iranian oil can pass through the uh, Hormuz Strait, uh, if Iranian oil cannot go through the Hormuz, then no other oil can go through that. And uh, I was wondering uh, what is, this question is to either of you. Uh, What will be uh, Iran's reaction if the number, uh, as the number uh, approaches to zero, and uh, Pompeo, the Trump administration, is working on reducing it to zero, Iran's oil export. What would be the, Iran's reaction? Okay, great, thanks. So two good questions. One on um, the low price environment and how it impacts the security environment. And then the second on, uh, basically, I think the, the Iranian threat to retaliate if its oil exports continue to be blocked. Who'd like to start? I'll take, the second, I'll take the second question. So I think the, the issue is that Iranian exports are not actually being blocked. Um, the pressure is being put entirely on the importers of Iranian oil not to import Iranian oil. So the, the sanctions are, so, so what you're seeing is you're seeing the United States put sanctions on companies that are importing Iranian oil. So um, like uh, there was a, a Chinese shipping company, I, think recently that was that was sanctioned. And so that's that's really where the pressure is going. And so there is actually Iranian oil, they can send as much oil as they want through the Strait of Hormuz and have it sit in the Indian Ocean if that's what they want to do. There's no blocking of it. It's really all on on the importers. And we are still seeing some Iranian oil get out. And I think that that we're still gonna see that because um, you know it it's, it's po- potentially impossible to sanction every last uh, importer, and there are ways of getting around it. There are ways of kind of cloaking where the oil is coming from. Uh, but it's really, really low right now. And um, I'm not sure that Iran is really going to be able to have the justification to, to do anything because there it won't ever be a block. An Iranian ship is going to, you know, if, if, if Iran is exporting that oil, it can get out there. The question is, is anyone going to buy it? And that that's, it may make Iran uncomfortable, it may make Iran unhappy, it may make them very frustrated, but um, they probably will find a buyer for it, and they probably will be able to find a way to, to get that oil out there. Um, I think they've done a, a pretty good job. I would consider the, the, the rate that they've gotten it to is probably as good as it's going to get. Um, sure. Yeah, so um, on the point about Iran and Hormuz, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an important point to make, which is that um, you know, if Iran sends a lot of its oil through Hormuz, it has a strong incentive not to screw up the Strait of Hormuz, right? Um, if we sanction Iran such that it has less and less oil going through Hormuz and maybe isn't selling any at all, you could argue it has much less to lose from closing the Strait of Hormuz. Um, marginally, that might be true but they would still have a lot to lose from closing the Strait of Hormuz because the United States would certainly retaliate um, and cause massive damage to the Iranians, right? So um, I I tend to think that the marginal effect of less oil um, is not something that's going to make the Iranians be especially bold in doing anything with Hormuz because they still have to contend with the United States. Um, On the low prices, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that when prices go up, we're like, oh no. When prices go down, 
we also now have an like an oh no reaction, right? Like, well, what about all the frackers in North Dakota and all these other sorts of places? Um, who knows what they're going to do in the future, right? Who knows what prices are going to do in the future? So um, I'm not sure that there are long-term sort of security consequences of it. That would be my, my take. Josh? Just add very briefly, um, not on the, the, the price question, but I was really struck by the tripwire metaphor. Right? So in the Cold War, uh, when the U.S. was trying to deter the Soviet Union, we, we tinkered with this idea of the tripwire. A, a, a smallish U.S. force in, uh, in Europe that would get overrun immediately in the event of a conflict, but in such a way that the U.S. would be compelled to respond, right? That this is what the tripwire was supposed to be. That made a, a, there was a grisly sort of logic behind that because the United States had local disadvantages, right? The, the, the Soviet army was enormous, right? And there were real fears that it could steamroll uh, uh, NATO forces on the ground in Central Europe. Using a tripwire in the Gulf doesn't make any sense because the balance of capabilities is utterly reversed. In this case, the U.S. has gigantic conventional military advantages. Like, Iran is, is, is not impressive militarily. This is, this is a country relying on 1970s vintage uh, uh, tech. This is, this, is a, this is a military that the United States can handle. It has all of the, all of the advantages. Um, so if you wanted to uh, uh, try to create stability and deter Iran from mischief in, in, in the Gulf or something in the Straits of Hormuz, right, it, it, that's a pretty straightforward proposition. I don't think that's terribly difficult to do, to deter, deterring Iran from that kind of thing. I think what, what we're seeing here is that the United States right now is not trying to deter Iran. It's trying to compel Iran to change its behavior, right? And I think this is, the, this is the, the fundamental error in the maximum pressure campaign. We're taking a very good hand in terms of maintaining stability and deterrence, uh, and we're squandering it because we have these more coercive purposes. We want to compel Iran to fundamentally change its policy and its behavior. So we're sacrificing the benefits of our military advantages to do a, a, a provocative strategy with um, uncertain outcomes. Okay, let's take a couple more questions. Um, so let's do these two here in the second row, gentlemen in the blue suit, uh, blue shirt, and uh, in the red tie. Hi. I'm Dean Foreman, Chief Economist at the American Petroleum Institute. This is a really um, very thought-provoking panel, so thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. There are a lot of comments and a lot of things that I could react to, but I want to build off of your comments, Ellen, which are really insightful. I like the fact that you talked about the interdependence, the fact that now isn't forever. And in the title of the session, where we're talking about the Iranian crisis and what it means, you know, energy and economic security for the U.S. really go hand in hand as we're exporting more, as you highlighted. What do you see as the limits to this in terms of OPEC cohesion kind of being pushed to the very limits in this environment? And the reason the Iranian crisis a few months ago didn't really rock world markets was partly the cushion provided by U.S. and other production. And it was partly the fact that the Saudis did triage in unprecedented ways of bringing stuff from offshore and out of storage and trying really hard to reassure global markets in the face of an imminent initial public offering for Saudi Aramco. So 
you know, how do you, and myself having spent 2017 in Saudi Arabia, you know, what do you see as the limits of Saudi stability if there's a fifth reason they need some uh, U.S. presence to help maintain that as Shiite and Iranian influence destabilizes things or has tried to wreak havoc within the region? What do you see as the limits for that, for that stability and then OPEC cohesion? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a really important. I'm just gonna uh, let me explain a little bit about what, what you were referencing for everyone else. So he was talking about the attack on the um, there was this Iranian attack, probably drones, also maybe missiles on um, Saudi oil facilities that took um, a fair amount of Saudi oil production offline and. Um, Oil prices kind of skyrocketed up there for a minute and then uh, came back down very quickly. And part of the reason that this attack had a very transient effect on the oil market was because Saudi Arabia both responded very quickly. Um, the damage was they were able to institute workarounds, which those of us who studied Aramco um, had a very good feeling that they would be able to, to get in place very quickly, but also because they took a lot of oil out of storage. The fact is that this is the kind of thing that they're prepared for. And, um, you know, Rosemary mentioned, um, you know, that, that one of the interesting things about the fracking um, movement in the United States is that it proved that the United States is that, that they can actually respond fairly quickly to, you know, raise oil production or, or decrease oil production. Well, one of the other one of the other places that can respond very quickly is Saudi Arabia because they have a, a good amount of spare capacity actually by kind of law or royal decree. They have to maintain a certain amount of spare capacity that they can turn on and off um, to deal with these kinds of crises. So they were very um, you know, pro-stabilizing the oil market, which is interesting because from a policy perspective, if you're looking at it from Saudi policy, that might not have been the best move. They could have really played this up, gotten, uh, you know, if they want more more U.S. military presence in Saudi Arabia, they could have used that to really get stuff from the United States. They could have used it to, you know, jack up oil prices for a while. They, they could have gone the opposite direction, and they didn't. And I think that the key reason for, for that is because it was more important to them to maintain their relationships with their customers. It's very important for Aramco to be seen as a stable source. They pride themselves on, you know, 99% deliverability. If you buy oil from them, you're going to get it no matter what. And that was a really important reputation for them to uh, maintain, particularly because they're in this for the long game. Um, they believe that low oil prices will play themselves out eventually, and um, that when the, that wherever the last barrel of oil is consumed, it's going to be a Saudi barrel of oil that, that is consumed. And when you're in it for the long game, you're not going to, to make those moves that could harm your um, you know, your, your reliability. So I think that that was uh, part of it. Uh, then you asked, um, you know, what are kind of the limits of, of OPEC stability? We're seeing a lot of that right now playing out. OPEC doesn't do well trying to respond to low oil prices because they can cut to try, cut production to try to push oil prices up, but in an environment where there are so many other producers who are not part of OPEC, particularly the United States now, it's a really hard prospect to do, and you end up losing money. Because one of the differences about what we're seeing now from the 2014-2015 when oil prices were also very low is that back then, oil prices were low, but production from OPEC was really high. Now we're in a situation where there are already have low production and oil prices are low. So they're not making up revenue by 
selling more oil at this point. And I think that we're seeing right now their test, this, the relationship that they had with Russia, which was key to helping lift oil prices in 2017 and, and 2018, is really coming under the gun because Russia doesn't see any interest in cutting production to try to push oil prices up. From Putin's perspective, hey, so oil, oil's $55 a barrel as opposed to 60. I don't really care whether or not he should care is, is a different story, but he says he doesn't care. And um, you know, the, the more oil they cut, the more oil I can sell, and I'm just gonna sell more to China, and that's gonna be the way it is. And and that's really testing the limits of this relationship. I think that the coronavirus and the response in a, in a global oil market is, I would not be surprised. I think that they'll do everything they can to keep Russia in this OPEC fold, but it's really getting thin. Uh, they really don't have a good excuse to hold on to a relationship in which Russia's basically saying, you produce less and we're gonna stay the same and make more money off of you. And, uh, and I think we're, we're gonna see, we've been seeing the limits of OPEC cohesion in terms of the smaller countries. A lot of them have been peeling off. We saw Indonesia, Qatar go possibly Ecuador, uh, but if Russia leaves this relationship, I think um, we're really, OPEC won't be in a position to really make much of a difference in the market. And I love, I love this point uh, that you made in sort of the first point here about interdependence, because I think when we talk about energy security, and this came up a little earlier, we, we so often view this as from the point of view of the, the importing, you know, the dependent countries, but it really is, as you say, it's an interdependent world. And um, countries like Saudi Arabia want to be seen as a good supplier, a reliable supplier, because if they're not, that's bad for them in the long term. So we had a question from a gentleman over here. Up to now, most of the panel's uh, discussion has been based on uh, energy, energy sec uh, security for uh, American policy on energy security. But as uh, last week, I believe, uh, UK MP stated that uh, American foreign policy is run by a puppeteer master's Israel. And uh, not only overseas, even in this country, I, I didn't see any discussion from the, uh, this panel that what happened regarding Iran or anything in the Middle East, even in a lot of other countries in Europe, is mostly conducted or, as uh, said, uh, puppeteered by Israel. Okay, what thank is that, you. Uh, Okay, thank you. Let's take a couple more questions. I want to make sure we have time for everybody. Thank you. Um, there's one up there, I think about five rows in. And anybody else? Uh, yep, okay, up there. Um, we'll take those two and then let the panel respond. Alec McRae, a retired psychologist. Uh, one conflict in the Middle East that hasn't been touched on by this group is the war in Yemen, which has involved at least one major attack on uh, Saudi oil supplies that decreased them by half for a period of time. So I'd like to know, what does the panel think the role of the United States should be in the Yemen war? And last question. Bahman uh, Abdullahi. I recently came to the US and uh, I taught in Iran Azad University. Um, my question was, um, uh, about uh, the precise attack 
that was made on Saudi oil facilities, uh, if this happens again, what, what the U.S. is going to do? Because at the moment, the talking point among Iranian officials is that, uh, well, even the U.S. Patriot missiles couldn't do anything, and these, these attacks were made anyway. So uh, I would like to see your response to this. Okay, great. So, yeah, so some slightly more regional questions there. So perhaps energy security in the, in the context of the conflict in Yemen, relationships with Israel. Um, but then I think particularly a couple of these questions alluded to the attack on Saudi oil facilities earlier this year and sort of how does that shape the calculations of U.S. policymakers? So on, 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 on the question of what happens if there's another attack, I think that's, that's an excellent uh, uh, jumping off point. Um, I'm not sure exactly what uh, the U.S. response would be, um, I, but I suspect that, that uh, a subsequent attack, is, especially if it's a pattern, if it's not just one but multiple, will kind of inevitably draw a stronger U.S. response. And you'll also be more willing to, to hit back in some way against uh, Iran. Right? Um, I, I think partly that is... Uh, due to the peculiarities of the, the Trump administration. But I think that it, there, there's a, a deeper issue at stake, is that, that a majority of Americans still really believe that the Gulf is central to U.S. national security. Okay? There was a, a Chicago Council uh, poll recently which found that by a large number, Americans view the Middle East as the region most closely bound up with American national security. And it wasn't really close. It's like 61% of, of respondents uh, answered this way uh, from, from different political backgrounds and across the board. Right? So my concern is that a, 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 another attack and perhaps a pattern of attacks would create pressures domestically in the United States to respond somehow. I'm not a soothsayer. I don't know exactly what the response would look like, but there would be pressure for something bigger and more conspicuous, right? and, and perhaps more, more, more dangerous. This is, uh, again, this is why maximum pressure is, is uh, misguided, because it, 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 it's poking Iran. It's, it's inviting more attacks. It's inviting uh, the Iranian regime, which is under terrific uh, uh, distress, to lash out somehow. The more they lash out, the more there'll be domestic pressure in the United States to lash back. Right? Whereas, again, a, a, a more subdued uh, military posture would be enough to deter Iran from acting, but sufficient to remain the peace such that we can restrain ourselves. Any other comments on these questions? I would say um, just about the Yemen uh, war. Um, it's an interesting question, and, and my, my reaction, my gut reaction is that it's not really the United States fight, right? This is something that is more a, a cost of our uh, patronage of the Saudis and our position in the Middle East um, in the sense that uh, the U.S.'s reputation is being hurt by some of the more brutal tactics being used by uh, our friends the Saudis, using in some cases American uh, weapons um, in this conflict, that 
does not have a direct impact on the United States. And in terms of uh, you know, effects on the Saudi oil industry, I think Ellen you know, made the point very strongly that the Saudis, they, they, have the, they got the memo, right? They know that they need to worry about this. They are well prepared to respond to any attacks on their facilities really very quickly. Okay, let's take a last round of questions, if there are any more in the audience. Yeah, okay, they're in the, in the middle. Please wait for the microphone just so people listening at home can hear you. Yeah, a lady there. Um, and then is that a question up the back? Yes, a question up the back there. All right. What I was wondering is we're, um, you're talking about our own U.S. production through fracking, horizontal drilling, um, but quite a bit of this has been um, facilitated by extensive borrowing. I was wondering if you guys have up-to-date information about it becoming more um, financially stable. Okay. Um, and then a question up the back from someone that looks suspiciously like John Glazer, Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies. There you go. I don't have to introduce myself now. Um, listening to the panel, one would get the sense that U.S. policy isn't just a little wrong towards the Middle East. It's very, very wrong. Um, some explanations to account for the gulf, so to speak, between the experts and policymakers. <laughs> oh. Okay, so um, I think perhaps the financial stability question sounds like it's right um, up your alley. I mean, I'll, I, I can't speak, you know, to all of the financial situations of all of the myriad of companies that are involved in this, but it is an issue, and, and the fact that most of it has been financed, um, and it was kind of, um, we found out in the first round of low oil prices that Wall Street was very willing to continue to lend money and, and extend lines of credit to a lot of the companies who were involved in this. Part of that has to do with the fact that where else are they going to put their money? Interest rates are really low, so, you know, there's lots of money to be had, and there aren't necessarily a lot of other great places to put it, so they're putting it in there. That's changed. Okay, in this round, we're definitely seeing that the companies that were doing a lot of this financing are saying, okay, now show us the profits. It's not clear that fracking company that a lot of can, can really make a lot of profit here. That's, that's one of the things that we seem to have, have discovered, that there isn't a whole lot of profit to be made. People are definitely getting rich, but that doesn't mean that companies are making a huge amount of profit, and that's going to be an issue. And we're seeing a lot of consolidation uh, as a result. We're seeing larger companies buying up smaller ones, but that, that is an issue, and that is, in fact, expected and has been kind of incorporated into a lot of the modeling that we see in terms of how much we expect um, U.S. oil production to grow. And, and it, but it's the kind of thing that is, it is particularly fluid, and we do see it, see it changing. So that is a big issue, and it's an important one to look at. Um, I don't have up-to-date you know, numbers on, on what's going on there, but, um, but financing is a much bigger issue now than it was in you know, 20, 2015, 2016. Um, I don't remember the other question. So. Yeah, so, so, the, so the other question, and perhaps this is a good place to sort of wrap up, is so John asked, you know, what, um, what explains uh, this continued sort of U.S. public focus and policy focus on the Middle East? How do we explain the sort of the, the difference between uh, public opinion and, and what we're all talking about up here on the stage? And so. Um, that question, and if you have any final thoughts, perhaps we should just go down the line. We'll start with you, Josh. Sure. Well, thank you again for, for the invitation, for, for um, uh, the marvelous questions throughout. It's been a great discussion. To, to John Glazer's question about why is there this gap bet between what we're saying on stage <laughs> and what the administration is doing, I, I, I think the, the, the main issue is that the Gulf region is 
the confluence of all of our nightmares. Right? So if, if, if you look at, uh, at, at Gulf security issues, we have to think about terrorism and extremism and uh, authoritarian states and regime change and the possibility of democracy and uh, nuclear proliferation and oil, right? And it all comes together in this place, which creates this, this powerful magnetic field for American foreign policy that's hard to break away from, right? Which is, which is a sort of terrible irony because, again, I've, I've sort of stressed this, that the United States is in a very good position to achieve its interest in the Gulf without a huge uh, presence, right? But for all of these other reasons, there's this, this, there's this durable pressure to do more in the Gulf. This is not to say that it's impossible. Again, we have a recent example. Barack Obama, I think, did a very good job of trying to recalibrate our, our position and, and, and had a pretty clear-eyed view of, of what we can do there right, and what we can't do there. But it'll be hard to, 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 to find another Obama who can uh, uh, do the same. Um, I would say that um, the media is a big role in this, that there's a lot, and, and, public, and also in crafting public sentiment. Like I, that, that study you cited was really insightful, and in that a lot of people believe that the Middle East is a really important region. And I think that, particularly since the oil shocks of the 70s, that's a major incident that's kind of focused in the minds of a lot of people who are still making policy, and particularly, you know, people, when, if you were alive then and you remember what it was like when um, there were gasoline shortages, that's a very powerful mindset that I think is yet to be chipped away at, and that, that has a very powerful influence. Then you combine, throw onto that 9-11, and you throw on the, the Gulf War, and, and all of these other things, it becomes very hard to um, extract yourself from, from these mindsets. Uh, and then I'll throw in one of the pieces that there are a lot of people who have made an awful lot of money off of you know, having an American presence in the Middle East. And if uh, American military presence is drawn down, then a lot of those people uh, are, are out, of, of, out of work. I mean, I have people saying, well, well, can you give me something that will explain that even though America produces a lot of oil, we still need to be in the Middle East? It's like, give me reasons why we still need to be in the Middle East. I'm like, well, there's a fundamental problem with the question that you're asking. Um, and so I think there's, there's also a lot of, a lot of a lot of people's careers are made, uh, predicated on justifying why we should be there, and it's very hard to, to pull that back. I would say, um, and I appreciate the pun about the Gulf. I thank you for that. Um, I'd say that the, there's two simple explanations. One is inertia, right? So a country that goes to the Middle East tends to stay in the Middle East, right? It's like Newton's law of politics. Um, the other is that it's just really cheap, right? Um, I agree, you know, if we want to stay, I think we could do it much more cheaply. But even still, um, the U.S. is a really rich country, and you know we can just stay there and continue to spend the money uh, for a long period of time. And so there's not a huge impetus for us to leave. Well, thank you so much for all coming today. Um, we'll be having a lunch after this. The lunch will be held upstairs on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Um, just go up the spiral staircase. The restrooms are on the second floor. On your way to lunch, just look for the yellow wall. Um, and <clears throat> out of courtesy, please allow the speakers to edit the auditorium. They'll be available at lunch to answer any further questions, and they all request that everybody please engage in elbow bumps uh, instead of handshakes for coronavirus. Um, so thank you all for coming. Help me give our panelists a big hand.